This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Girl in the Dumpster, a novel. And the author is Jack Apfel, and Jack joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jack. Hi, Steve. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're going to talk in detail about this very character-driven book, a lot of twists and turns. But before we get into the details, I want to read what you have written just in general so everyone knows what we're going to discuss. You say this, A Girl in the Dumpster is about a baby girl found in a dumpster by a homeless woman and the effects the baby has on several people in her first week of life. It's also about a 17-year-old girl whose life of drug abuse and careless sex has become a dumpster of a different sort. So we've got, yeah. uh, we've got this, I guess, uh, two themes kind of running, two plots kind of running side by side. Is that what we've got here? Uh, yeah, there there are a lot of uh, side plots that, that that come into it. Uh, the reason Angie is mentioned there is because once she showed up in the book, uh, she kind of took over. Okay, Angie's the seventeen-year-old. Angie is the seventeen-year-old. Yeah. Well, before we get into the details, uh, what was the motivation to write this book? Where did this idea come from? Uh, the idea of the homeless woman finding the girl in the dumpster was just, you know, something I was toying with because just from watching uh, television dramas and everything, there are two things that just showed up frequently on ER and, and cop shows and whatever else of homeless woman uh, finding something in the dumpster and, or the baby showing up in the dumpster. So I figured, well, what if I combine the two? You know, I, I, I've always liked writing and, and dug into it seriously since I was about 40. And I said, well, let's see where that goes, because it raises questions of, uh, okay, where did the baby come from? What's going to become of the baby? Um, it, it, it seemed like it had enough, raised enough questions to, to support a novel. I didn't, I didn't specifically write it to be character-driven. I just you know, wanted to follow it where the story took it. Uh, but the characters started interesting me as soon as they showed up. Well, the beginning of the book really draws you in because of the details. Uh, you really create this scene. I can see it after reading mm-hmm. just a few pages. I can see this homeless woman kind of stumbling in this alley behind the restaurant because she's hungry and she knows that the restaurant's closed and they've thrown the the food into the dumpster that that people didn't finish, and it's always, uh, for her, it's always, I guess it saves her life. Yes. And and she's, you know, the first one that the baby has an effect on, changing where her life is going. And the, the details in that just developed over time. There are actually a lot of stuff that I cut out from that prologue because it did. 
uh, it, it didn't seem necessary. And then there were things that I added later on uh, because uh, they're just little details that show up uh, later in the story. So obviously this homeless woman finds the baby in the dumpster, a girl in the dumpster as the title yes. of the book. Of the book. Uh, and suddenly this little girl starts to change a lot of people's lives. Uh, as you put it, uh, there's, what, four major ones or, that it really affects? Yeah. The, 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 the married couple and, and Angie and Anne who, who takes them in, and, of course, the homeless woman um, uh, uh, who is nameless in, 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 in that opening right. prologue. But she kind of comes back into the story later. Yeah, uh, she comes in and out as they all do. It, it kind of it's it's um, 150 chapters, sections of going in and out of these various people's lives. The connection being the downtown neighborhood that they all have some connection to in one way or another, and the baby, and they all have you know human problems and, and, and difficulties that. Um, the baby has some. The presence of the baby has some effect. On. The baby is a girl in the dumpster, but the reason I, I, I introduce it the way it is is because Angie is also a girl in the dumpster. The seventeen-year-old dumpster. Yeah, the seventeen-year-old. Yes, the seventeen-year-old. And if uh, she became such a big part of the, the book that you have to include that, yeah, this is really the girl in the dumpster. Yeah, she's got a, a dumpster life. Yes. Um, that in its way, you know, through all the connections and everything, is, is uh, influenced by the, by this baby. And is that because of Jake, her dumpster life? Oh, yes. Yes. He's a really bad man or bad boy. I mean, yes. how old is he? Uh, Jake's around 23. 23. Okay, so he knows better. He knows better. He's yeah. He's just and um, he's evil, but he's sort of a lazy sort of evil. <laughs> he uh, he doesn't really work at being nasty. He just naturally does nasty things. He's very impulsive um, and very much uh, narcissistic. And whatever occurs to him at the time, unfortunately, it usually involves Angie and other girls. Yeah, and, and and he really has uh, very very few redeeming qualities, but he has to, you know, just as the story progresses, the part he plays in it, you know, you see why he has to be a nasty character. He uses, a, you know, he does a lot of vulgar things and does a lot of vulgar language, which, um, you know, I struggle with when in writing, but I, I know guys like Jake. I have known guys like Jake, and that's just how they talk. <laughs> right. Well, you say that, you know, even though this is uh, has a lot of surprising twists, the plot, and it's uh, mainly driven by its characters, it doesn't fit into the genre of mystery or romance. There are, of course, elements of both, but you want to read on not just to find out what happens next, but what happens next to these particular characters, because you've really come yeah. to know them, and, and uh, uh, it's even sentimental in some ways, you say. Oh yes, yeah. Um, uh, it has that that 
uh, touch of, of, of romance books that it, you know, it, it's sentimental about the lives, and you get into it, you know, a lot of what the, uh, particularly what the the married couple Beth and Evan are feeling about each other, or, um, and how their emotions react, you know, bring about this, and and how all everybody's emotions are, are stirred up by the, by this the presence of this baby. That kind of change things, and it's, you know, and, and and they're sentimental about babies in general, and this one in particular. You know, the baby has no lines of dialogue, does virtually nothing in the book, but has all this influence on everybody. Right. Well, this has a different kind of ending, folks. Uh, you know, everyone always wants to have things just kind of work out, but we won't say anything more. But it has a different kind of ending. Yes. Yes, and yes. That, that I struggled with for about a year about how things were going to uh, to work out. And in the end, in, in the epilogue, things have, you know, they're okay. It's not a happy ending. Everybody is kind of settled at that moment, but if you follow the story, you know that things aren't going to stay that way. As, you know, people's lives don't, you know. There, you know, the happily ever after ending usually doesn't doesn't happen. People are happy for a while, then things get complicated again. Tell us about Anne Hedlin. Uh, she is the one who took the woman in, the homeless woman, and of course the baby. Yes, thinking that the the baby that the homeless woman was the mother of the baby, um, because the homeless woman says so little. Uh, she had no reason to believe otherwise. Um, Anne is just uh, a quiet, pretty level-headed woman who runs this resale shop, has run it on her own for 20-some years, doesn't really get involved with much of anybody, um, pretty much lives on her own, takes care of things, doesn't like to ask other people for favors. Um, if she does, you know, repays them or whatever. Um but something about this baby coming into her life, she's not the kind of person that would invite somebody into her home even even as a guest, you know, for a party or a dinner or whatever. She's, uh, but something about this, this this baby and this woman just gets to her and says, you know, well, okay, I can take care of them for a couple of days. And then it turns, you know, she becomes more attached to them, even though she's not really having conversations with either one of them. There's just something, the presence in her, in her house that kind of changes things. And the baby has a tremendous effect on Anne's shy, teenaged niece. Yes, yes. Who, who, um, uh, Gretchen showed up, and, and these people did kind of show up in the story, you know, because, all right, you know, I was toying with, you know, one of the key things you wonder from the prologue is, well, where did this baby come from? And Gretchen started up, you know, well, maybe she had the baby. Um, and I purposely hadn't decided where the baby came from till very late in the book. Um, which, you know, in a way, it's a surprise to me, the ending, too. But <laughs> uh, Oh, that's what happened. Oh, now I understand now this book I that I'm writing. That's what <laughs> Gretchen, is, Gretchen is the hardest character to write. Angie was the easiest. Angie's flamboyant and, and 
vulgar and everything else. She's actually pretty easy to write. Uh, Gretchen, because she's so quiet and so reserved and shy, it's hard to put anything out there about you know really what's going on with her, what what she's like, because she's so protective of it herself. Um, but yeah, the baby has that effect on her too. That this this, this baby brings out something of her. Then, of course, there's the storefront uh, preacher and his wife, and then there's a successful divorced realtor and the realtor's teenage daughter. We don't have time to get into the... Well, the uh, teenage daughter is, is Angie. Oh, okay. That's Angie. Okay. Yes. And um, the realtor is her mother, um, who also is not a very sympathetic character early on. <laughs> um Give us a another com- character that was a little bit easier to write, but she's she's not a real likable person. Give us you a know, c- Anne from the beginning is is you know a likable person, and and it remains pretty much um, a sensible person throughout, which most of the other characters aren't. Give us a closing thought about this kind of uh, message that is through the book: trust and betrayal of it even in simple matters, can have a large impact on people's lives? Well, you know, it starts with the fact that, you know, the homeless woman trusts Anne. She doesn't seem, you know, she could have walked away from that baby, but she trusts Anne. And, um, you know, Anne doesn't really trust doctors, but in this one situation, she ends up trusting them and and taking the baby in. Um, you know, Angie really doesn't trust anybody except Jake, which is, you know, a continuing mistake throughout her, her relationship with him, um, because he constantly betrays her trust. Um, and it, it's only through how things progress that, you know, once she gets away from Jake and deciding who is really trustworthy, uh, that things start to change for her. Um, the, the, the married couple don't really trust each other anymore and find out how much they don't when, when uh, the baby enters their lives. Well, in closing, uh, I want to read this uh, last sentence of a description that you have written about your book. You say, with complex characters and surprising twists, author Jack Apfel has given us a compelling story of how lives can be knocked off their seemingly inevitable trajectories by an unexpected event, like someone finding a girl in a dumpster. Uh, That certainly would turn your world upside down, and that's what this book does. It turns everybody's world upside down. Jack, tell us how to get your book. Uh, It's available at iUniverse.com in their bookstore. It's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Um, and can be ordered through your local bookstore. The title of the book, A Girl in the Dumpster, a novel, and the author, Jack Apfel. Jack, we appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle. 
and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Simaluka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Simaluka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, America Adrift, Writing the Course, The Decline of America's Great Values. And the author is John W. Zimmerman Sr. And John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Very important topic. Very, very important, not only for today, but for the future. Let me read what you have written about your book. You say this, I always ask my friends if they feel America's great values are in decline. Most of them say they do. Then I can briefly talk about the book, examples of the impact of that values decline in our society, what it will take to really turn the tide. The book provides many guidelines and examples of ways any sound-valued American can get involved. Hope you will buy it, enjoy, and be inspired by this book. And what I like about it, it isn't just pointing out the, the decline, but you're trying to help people see how they can turn it around. And like you say in your title, Writing the Course. Now, John, what motivated you to uh, publish this book? Uh, let me go back a little bit and and uh, talk about myself because that's that's where it started. I mean, I I grew up in a middle class home with sound values, and like all kids, I experimented with temptations and testing the limits. And I found that my values kept me out of serious trouble, just beyond mischief, and that was good to know. I spent my career in management consulting with Kepner Trigo Inc and enjoyed every day of that. And we help companies around the world uh, look at and improve their operational and strategic decision-making. And, and in doing that, my colleague and friend and boss, Ben Trigo, and I saw the importance of sound 
basic beliefs and values as a most critical input to those decisions. And we also found that true in the growth of our own company as we grew from a three-man firm to a worldwide consulting firm. And then also I certainly worked with my wonderful wife, Charlotte, and helping her see that our four boys were raised with sound values. And uh, I've also worked with several volunteer organizations and have mentored a couple of young men. And my passion says that, you know, really sound values are the most influential input to successful decision-making behavior and your relationships with others. And as I grew toward retirement, from what I read and viewed on TV and observed, I, I began to conclude that some of America's great values that made us a respected nation were in decline. Things like honesty and trust and loyalty and moderation and respect, self-accountability and the like, and that that really was causing consequences across all segments of our society. For example, um, fewer and fewer folks trust those running our federal government. We have a scope of federal debt out of control. We have a public education system in increasing disarray as far as quality of education and graduation rates. We have too many business leaders devoted to short-term results, leading to Enron-type situations and housing, financial crises, and the like. The traditional family, which was the glue that held our society together, is falling out of favor. The health of our youth and our adults is an increasing problem. And too many folks are living for today and not thinking about tomorrow. And I said, you know, we need to, we need to do something about that. And I, I said, well, what's being done about it now? And obviously a lot is. I mean, there are a lot of organizations that are working to improve uh, the American culture, and a lot of volunteer hours and dollars are spent doing that. And my conclusion was that that, that may have slowed the decline, but it certainly hasn't turned the tide. And that led me to say, you know, as far as my passion for values, that as we were saying before, it'll take a great many Americans with good values and a quality of life and a love of country to take up this challenge and apply their good values and lifestyles to right the course. And if we do that, uh, that will give us some assurance to keep the American dream and future for our children and grandchildren and all who follow. So I've sat down and said, you know, I'll write this book. And it, it's exactly about that. It's about the decline in values, the consequences to our society, and, a, and some practical suggestions on, on what to do about it. And I, I really believe, Steve, that Americans can solve almost any societal problem if, if enough of us are dedicated to the challenge and have ideas about how to fix it and get involved and my hope is that this book might provide that 
inspiration. So there's a long answer to your question. Well, that was a very good answer. Your book has four chapters. It's a, yes. I would say it's, I don't know if it's a quick read, but it's not a large book, but at the same no. time, a lot to think about. So it's not a quick read, but chapter one, what happened to American values? Chapter two, the origin of values. Chapter three, improving values and their application. And chapter four, the golden rule of values. Now give us some of your take on the origin of values. Well, that the second chapter is about that. And as I say in the book, I use my own life as an example. But obviously your values begin to develop uh, in the home with your parents and your family. And uh, then as you grow a little bit older, you begin to test them in the outside world and experiment with other things and come back to those values. And, uh, and uh, then, then, you know, you, you grow up. And uh, what research suggests that all the experimentation one does, when you reach, uh, you know, the 20-year-old plus, you basically go back to the fundamental values that you learned uh, when you were uh, growing up in your family. And uh, so that's how values develop. I mean, the values, to me, defining them are the basic concepts and principles that determine uh, how we make decisions and how we relate to others and how we behave day by day in, in, uh, in the life. So that's how values develop. Well, it seems to me, as you, you know, from an individual's point of view, an American citizen uh, raised in a great family, my father uh, instilled a lot of values, sometimes yep. with a strong hand as well as with words. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's part of it. <laughs> you know, you, you, you see the family today, and of course, uh, we hear about all the problems of the family in the news media, but still there's this, I think there's this silent majority out there that still hasn't, uh, you know, taken up the cause, that they haven't stood up and say, we're not going to take this anymore, and we're going to start, uh, you know, talking to our neighbors and talking to our friends, talking to people in church and business, and just kind of, I mean, that's what we, it seems like a dialogue. We just need to talk more about values. I I agree with you 100%, and the, 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 the term silent majority is, is probably correct. I mean, most of the people I have as friends and associates have good values and a sound life and uh, are concerned about the future, uh, but aren't, we aren't doing enough collectively to say how to how does that silent majority get involved and what can we do to turn this decline around and and bring things back and the things that Steve the thing that things that are most troublesome are that you know the family to me really is the glue that that holds society together and households with marriage now are below fifty percent for the first time in our history and that's a very troubling piece of information and only 40 percent of American homes have a father and uh, those things are bound uh, to have significant influence on future values and uh, 
we, we've got to do something to recognize that and try to turn those things around and get people to understand what tradition is and that it's, it's a good idea to preserve the best parts of it. Well, there are many who have enjoyed the prosperity of this nation and are in a position today in their latter years uh, to do a whole lot more. What's your take on that? How much responsibility do we have if we're uh, semi-retired, retired? What's, what's our responsibility? Well, I, I think, and, I, and I, I say this in the book, I, I think that seniors, and of course I being one of them, <laughs> Uh, I think seniors who have had a quality of life and have done well and are retired, my viewpoint on that is, and I believe this very strongly, that if, if, if the world has been good to you, not that you haven't worked hard and earned what you had, uh, you, you need to give back. And I found in giving back that, that you know, the and I found this in my business career as well. The, the greatest reward you can have in life basically is helping someone improve their own quality of life and, and uh, become a better person. And uh, seniors have the time. And we've got, you know, I live in a retirement community here in Florida, and we've got a lot of people who donate considerable time to boys and girls clubs, to charities, to you know, foundations and all of that. But I have a lot of other friends who are just enjoying the good life. And uh, those are the ones we have to get after and say, you know, you owe the world a little something for what it's done for you. Let's, let's get busy and see if we, can't, if we can't fix some of the problems that are out there. Well, you mentioned the good life, and the good life is now for many, and the way this country is going, the accelerated pace of the, of the decline, the good life may go away. Well, th- this is one of the problems. You read now about all these baby boomers that are retiring, and, uh, you know, so many of them uh, uh, fell into the trap of... Uh, uh, leading the good life while I had it, and not thinking enough about the fact that uh, tomorrow's going to be there, and uh, maybe everything always won't be on the uptake. Uh, maybe things will get tougher, and uh, and they haven't put enough away uh, to uh, to enjoy retirement. And a lot of them are thinking about having to work a lot longer, and uh, so that you're, you're exactly right. <laughs> Well, one of uh, one of your reviewers, uh, Pastor Ted Schroeder, uh, there in Florida, yeah. he says this about you: that you sensitively describe problems and offer inspiration and practical suggestions to turn people around, so that they can develop themselves, achieve their goals, and make a lasting contribution to others. Uh, that really pretty much sums up uh, your goal, your mission, and the reason for this book. Absolutely, absolutely, and and if 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 this book doesn't uh, take people beyond the problem and provide some practical guidelines to help them take their good values and lifestyle and put it to work in their communities where things need improving, uh, then it hasn't done the job. And uh, you know, so obviously, as you say, that that is my hope. <laughs> Well, we hear a lot about the American dream, and of course, the American dream, 
as history has proven, has been built upon these values that you specifically describe and enlarge upon in your book. And so the American dream, there's only one way to achieve it. The only way to assure that that American dream and, and in fact, even our survival uh, will be around for our children and grandchildren and those that follow is if we begin to turn that values decline around and, and begin to put people in government who have values and stick to those values and make decisions based on them and are not bought off by ego and uh, re-election promises and all of that. And, and if we turn our education system around, our public education system around, so that we, instead of graduating 70% of our kids, we graduate a much higher percentage, and that we prepare them for life, and uh, that our business people uh, uh, don't succumb to short-term greed and, and let Wall Street dictate to them uh, what they ought to be doing. Uh, and that we have responsible government where, you know, they look at debt, and whether it's local level or state level or federal level, we have all kinds of, of local governments that are in deep trouble because they've committed uh, monies uh, without any real thought as to how the heck to pay for it. And now it's coming back to bite. And, you know, we've got to turn that around and... and, uh, and uh, uh, attack those problems and and uh, and uh, bring values back. The title of the book: America Adrift, Writing the Course: The Decline of America's Great Values. And the author is John W. Zimmerman, Senior. John, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book can be uh, gotten through uh, through uh, iUniverse, which is the publisher. Uh, it's available. Uh, it will be. It will be available on ebook uh, through the computer. It's obviously available through bookstores. And uh, if people want uh, an autographed copy, uh, they can get it from me because I've discovered that I can buy copies of this book from iUniverse and uh, autograph them and, and provide them to people. Uh, and and. Uh, my, my email is uh, jzim29 at comcast.net, and uh, I would be glad to um, you know, autograph a book and, uh, and uh, send it to uh, someone who might want it. Well, thank so you, it's available through all those sources. John, thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, I really appreciate talking with you, Steve, and it's, it's nice to find somebody who... Uh, who shares those same feelings, and obviously you do. Thank you, John. You're welcome. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. 
Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show as unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Shot of Brandy. And the author is David S. Tans, and David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Steve, it's a pleasure. How are you doing today? This is a fast-paced story of crime, greed, lost love, and life. It's a kind of book that you just don't want to put down. Let me just read a couple other things you've written about it, just to kind of set the stage for everyone. Set in the eastern colossal cities of Atlantic City and Philadelphia, a Shot of Brandy is a crime novel for the ages, complete with mobsters, murders, lovers, and the Columbo-like crime skills of the Organized Crime Task Force. This story is one that will grip you right from the first line. Well, that's the whole key, isn't it? Obviously, it takes a lot of talent. You're a creative thinker uh, to come up with this kind of storyline. Why do this, David? And, and how'd you come up with this uh, theme, this uh, plot? Well, I thought if I was going to write a book, it would have to be local, so I was familiar with a lot of the area, and Philadelphia in the book is more of a character than it is a city. And I used to read a lot of true crime books, watch true crime on television, and then moved over to the best-selling author genre of people like Nelson DeMille, Stuart Woods, Sandra Brown, James Patterson, and I developed a pretty big interest in mystery crime thrillers. So I decided to challenge myself and try to write a book that would encompass all of these authors, what their key successes were, and why they were so popular. Rick Gross, he is the center character, at least one of them, the entrepreneur on the edge of legal borders, uh, trying to make a living. Tell us about Rick. Rick is a the protagonist in the book, and as I was writing the book, it was interesting because I sent it to about a dozen people to advise me on what was right, what was wrong. Rick is a character that 
works on the fringes of illegal and legal activities. If you come into Philadelphia and you need a woman for the night, tickets for an Eagle game or a Philly game, reservations at a restaurant, a room in Atlantic City, him and his partner will provide these services for you. Um, at the same point, Rick, back in high school, had a woman he was madly in love with, uh, got her pregnant, and she vanished. A family moved her away to save face, and for the past two, three decades, he's been yearning for her to try to find her, and he tried, but he has had no luck, and the book dashes between his crime syndicate and actions, as well as his lust and his search for brandy. So we have a business portrayal, one of the uh, parts of the plot that push him in a new path. Well, what happens here is his partner uh, is picked up by the police, by the crime task force, and he starts to turn state's evidence. And this affects Rick because he's a two-time offender with crimes, and he has to use every resource he has to save his behind as well as keep his business going. So the book starts from there, and he starts taking actions and becoming a different person, a little more violent, a little more creative, a little more greedy, because now it's a matter of survival versus before when he had a partner and he was able to take it a little easier and split the duties with his partner. So he changes throughout the book, and he becomes a little more of an intense and greedy character. And he gets uh, mixed up with Julian Gando. Julian Gando is an interesting sort. He is a, uh, I guess, a representative of some of the New York mob, and his job is basically to keep Philadelphia clean and set it up in the future for the New York mob to move down because a lot of the current monsters in Philadelphia have been put away in jail in real life, too. People like uh, Nicky Scarfo, Joey Molina, Merlino, as well as Nick Stanford. So there was no real head of any Philadelphia mob and a lot of splinter groups. So Gando is coming down to do two things. One is to sort of organize the mob, and the other is to ask a few favors of Rick. He needs some jobs on. And then, of course, there's Stephen Davis. He is the head of this organized crime task force. Stephen Davis is a character who is very into quoting movies. Uh, my favorite personal movie is The Bronx Tale. But he's the head of a group of people who are out to sort of round up the organized crime in Philadelphia, whether it be terrorist type or mafioso type. His job is to keep the proverbial streets of weatherly love as clean as possible and out of the media and press. He is a nice character, he's a good guy. Uh, he's developed so that you can form your own opinion about him. But he's in charge of several people who have different jobs within the agency. There's Gerald Eklund, whose nickname is The Geek, a couple of female detectives who are into forensics, Jim Kelly, who's a rookie in his division, and they're out to solve this murder that occurs in the beginning of the book. And then, of course, a key witness is also murdered. Uh, the key witness is murdered, but I'd rather not go into it and let the readers figure that one out. Okay. Now, how does the Russian mob get involved in your story? Well, actually, it's quite accidental. They had a little run-in with the Philadelphia mob over an incident that happens up in New York, and the New York 
Russian mob feels like taking revenge. So they come down to Philadelphia to make a statement, basically, saying, stay off our turf and don't screw with our people. And that is an added uh, part of the book, along with the plot of Rick, as well as the Davis's OCTF trying to solve the crime. So the events take place in Philadelphia, Atlantic City, and the Caribbean, and as you say, they're all intertwined along with the South Philly mob, the Russian mob, and then you point out this, unhappily married women, which may be the most dangerous of the lot. Unhappily married women. Give us some of those details. Well, the main detail is, again, as I said in the beginning, Rick uh, has a love that he had gotten pregnant in high school, and all through the book, he's sort of half searching for Brandy, this woman. And the book opens up at the ballpark in Philadelphia during a, the opening game of the Philadelphia Phillies. And he's asking his friends from high school, because one of his high school buddies has become a sort of a star in the city and in its surrounding areas. And all through the book, he's yearning and looking for Brandy, because she's the one who got away. And... I don't want to ruin anything, but his love and lust for Brandy uh, adds to one of his downfalls. Now, the, a parking garage uh, is a main, uh, a, a major event happens in a parking garage? Well, I believe if you're writing a book or reading a book, you like to be grabbed in the first chapter or two. Otherwise, there's nothing to keep you reading. So there's a murder that occurs in the beginning which I believe has never happened on this planet. And it's pretty brutal and saconic at one point, or sardonic, excuse me. And it's a very different murder, and it's very squeamish. And again, without uh, revealing any of the details, uh, it's a pretty intense scene. Well, part of Rick's social life deals with a woman, uh, her name, Abby Rowe. Tell us about Abby. Abby Rose is a stage name for a female prostitute who owns a small brothel in Philadelphia, and she's been Rick's friend for a long time. Rick refers a lot of his clients from full-service concierge over to Abby Rose, and they're sometimes lovers but good friends. And Abby Rose plays a part in the book that sort of, without ruining it, leads Rick to... I guess you could say his downfall or his, uh, the part in the book where he sees a light. So Abby is a friend, a lover, and a confidant. And she has a part in the book. And she's also one of his defenders because she serves as his alibi uh, after he's arrested at one point. One of your reasons, obviously, is to be entertaining with this story. But at the same time you say this, you ask the question of the reader... Did this book challenge you on some level, making you think? Uh, I believe it does. Uh, this book isn't War and Peace or The Sun Also Rises. Uh, my opinion, what the American public buys and likes are escape-type books, summer beach reading, quick reads, books that you can not think but get into the characters, picture yourself as being part of the story, and getting involved. Um, I believe I've accomplished that in the fact that a number of people who have already read it think it could be a movie, and I, I agree with them. But when you read the book, I believe it 
a book is important because it's an escape. It's something you can get lost into. And this book, I believe, provides that exact escape that we all look for when we read. And part of the storyline is revenge. Revenge is one of those uh, seven sins, I guess, that everyone likes to see. In my opinion, all these mainstream authors I've been reading, uh, there's certain themes that sort of run throughout the story, such as love, greed, money, murder, revenge, jealousy. So I tried to tie all of these human traits into the book so that people would identify with something. And they're all tied in, and it's mixed up. There are a lot of twists and turns, and the reader might think it's going somewhere, but on the contrary, it takes you somewhere else. And it's pretty unpredictable. And your real, uh, I guess your big focus, your desire was to write a story that really the reader couldn't figure it out. Steve, you're absolutely correct. I know myself and probably most other readers who read this genre. When you read a book, you start thinking and perceiving ahead as to what's going to happen. And if it happens, you go, oh, I saw that coming. But when you can read a book that takes you and throws you at the end and goes, whoa, this is not where I thought it was going. That makes it more enjoyable for the reader as well as more challenging for the reader. So this struggle by Rick Gross to do whatever it takes to, uh, I guess, to get himself out of this mess, but it, and also at the same time to recapture a lost love. And, of course, then you got Davis working on the other side to uh, – Try to find the criminals responsible for a trail of death and obsessions. It sounds like it is a movie. Uh, I hope so. Uh, I didn't write the book with any financial or uh, egotistical uh, means to an end. I sort of wrote it because I wanted to see if I could write a book that would keep people's interest and if I could do it. It was a project. But the comments I've gotten from a number of people who have read it, and there are a few comments on Amazon about the book, it's something that will challenge the reader as well as make them think and wonder. I don't want something obvious. The obvious is no fun. And it's very fast-paced. I personally have ADD, and I'm all over the place when I talk and think. And I try to make the book the same way. I hope the readers who read it will enjoy the fact that it's unpredictable. But at the same time, the goal was to make it realistic. I believe it is. Uh, a lot of books are unrealistic. You go, oh, that doesn't happen in real life. Everything here is possible. It's all the compilation of all these true crimes like 48 Hours Mystery, The First 48, Dateline, City Confidential, and all the Anne Rule, Carlton Stower books I've read. Sometimes it's realism is hard to believe, but I tried to make this all believable, and I believe I had. But the title of the book, A Shot of Brandy, and the author is David S. Tans. David, tell us how to get your book. Well, currently the book is available for download on 12 different uh, formats, including Sony e-readers, iPads, uh, Nooks, and Kindles. And it's available from what I've seen on Barnes & Noble, as well as Amazon.com. And it's a short book. It's a number of people said they've read it in a day or two. 
And the beauty of that is a lot of these mainstream authors have characters that continue, such as Alex Cross, uh, Stone Barrington by Stuart Woods. And the second book is in the process of being worked on, and it will continue where this one left off. David, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Steve, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed speaking with you today, and I hope everyone enjoys it iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.